Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 162. I'm Jeremy and as always I'm joined with my two co-hosts. Oh wait, there's one co-host today. How are you doing bud? Good, good. How's everyone? And for those who don't know, you are? Ed. Just Ed. Well, as you can probably tell by the noise in our background, uh, where are we right now? We are, uh, it is currently Saturday about 6 p.m. in GP Richmond. Richmond. We're currently in the great state of Virginia, and uh, we're recording from the GP. So you, the listeners said that they really liked our. Um, the listeners said that they really liked our live uh, podcast. So you know, we figured we'd bring you all the sounds and sights, and definitely not the smells of Grand Prix Richmond. Um, do you want to talk about sort of what this event is like and like what events are going on this weekend first? Uh, so I think there's several things to kind of uh, construct about Richmond here. Uh, this is the second um, Magic Fest ever where the Mythic Championship was also a part of the Magic Fest. Uh, so the biggest change is that this is technically a four-day event. Um, the, uh, the event has started on Thursday. Uh, Wizards had announced earlier in the year that they have uh, brought back LCQs, uh, which is a 64-man single elimination event. And if you go 5-0 at this event, you qualify for the Pro Tour. Um, it's definitely a big change. This was one of the things that they had for a while. They took away. They brought back. I think it's definitely a good way to kind of get people in the door. You have a lot of pros that obviously come. A lot of people try and save their silver invite by grinding these things. If they think they're going to come anyways, they may as well try and save their silver invite for another event. Um, so that was Thursday. Uh, Thursday was also the drop of the mystery uh, convention boosters. Ed is really bad at talking into the mic. He said mystery boosters. M- mis- the, the mystery boosters convention edition. Yeah, we're going to uh, Joe Rogan it, this. Hold your hold the mic about a yeah. hand away from your, your face. That was that was the big drop this weekend. The first event was 3 p.m. on Thursday. Uh, that event itself had about 450 people for it. Uh the, so if you somehow have stayed dark this whole time, the bases of packs are, there is one test card, which Mark Rosewater later confirmed is um, going to only be limited to the convention uh, booster editions, and then they will continue to have these, excuse me, these convention editions uh, at Magic Fest for the remainder of this year and a bit into the beginning of next year as well, at which point they will transition from being a convention edition to being a store version that you can buy in store. Okay, so this weekend, just to recap, Wizards had one of their marquee competitive REL events, or professional REL events, where it's their main cash cow to get people to buy into Standard, and they did a mystery booster uh, draft just to see how many people would show up. And based on your experience, as we hear this um, announcement over again, what would you consider to be the better um, attended event? And like, what have players cared about more this weekend? Uh, well, it's very clear that there's no, there's not that much interest in standard. The main event had, I think, like right about 500 people which is a pretty sad state of affairs. Uh, the Pro Tour itself, Oko was 70% of the meta, which is a pretty strong indicator of how how messed up standard is right now and how really unenthusiastic people are about playing it. Yeah. 
Uh, it seems very clear that, you know, there people want the new thing. We have traditionally expected a fall slash a late fall winter set that comes out usually November in the past few years. It's been, I think, Unstable, Iconic Masters, uh, what was it last year? Whatever it was. Uh, people kind of come to expect it. Uh, they obviously hyped this one up because they, this was uh, the people who opened the set on Thursday. This was the first time that it was ever available in public. Um, so obviously there's a lot of hype for it. They've been firing events for it all weekend. There's uh, there's drafts on demand. So there's uh, there's definitely a lot of excitement around it. I think it's it's one of those things that people really enjoy playing. So so um, I bet you could say that uh, like and I, I wasn't even here on Thursday or Friday. It, it felt like the people that showed up for Standard and the Championship, like, it was pretty dead for basically every vendor up until all the casual players showed up, right? Yeah, so Thursday was a really strange day. It was actually fairly busy for us. Uh, part of that might be because we uh, we were, like, the booth itself, we were fairly short-staffed for most of the day. Yeah. Um, and obviously with the with the Mythic Championship, Mythic Championship itself, there's a huge rush of players who are needing cards last minute for the Pro Tour. Um, in, in addition, there were, you know, there are a fair amount of people that decided to take a long weekend off. We're here from basically Thursday onwards. Um, and they have been here all weekend. So Thursday wasn't the slowest day. I would actually argue that Friday wasn't a particularly busy day either. Um, one, because, you know, the players for the Pro Tour have kind of gone their nonsense settled. And if people weren't there for the long haul, they may not have shown up until today. Today was a reasonably busy day all day. And the room is the room for most of the day was actually quite full as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it's interesting because um, I feel like they're going to be doing more and more of these in order to like save events for vendors. Something that we can sort of talk about real fast is like a lot of players who are playing in the main event, the Grand Prix today, which is like one of the smallest Grand Prix ever. They had 128 tables around one, and like 500 people are registered for the Grand Prix, but a, a bunch of them are at the Pro Tour, so they're not like actually dropping from the Pro Tour to play in it. So everyone who made day two, they were given the option to go 3-0, or they could play. They could play through their rounds of draft. Yeah. Everyone at the at the Mythic Championship itself were automatically given three buys to the Grand Prix. Right. Uh, so obviously, like uh, it, the number of tables was not indicative of how busy the Grand Prix itself was going to be. But it gave an idea of, like, there. It, it's very clear that a lot of people weren't wanting to play standard. There's The retention rate is pretty poor. Usually, you know, when these uh, when there's two events happening at the same time, people want to be playing the same format because they should feel like they have an edge. I, you know, if I felt like I qualified for a pool tour, I spent a bunch of time testing and playing Oakland Mirrors, I would feel comfortable if I, you know, if I made it to a pro tour, I should be okay playing in the Grand Prix. But the retention was pretty low. I know quite a few of my friends just had no interest in playing more standard after they scrubbed out of the Pro Tour because they had a pretty miserable time. And speaking of playing standard, um, I feel like we should talk about vendor economics today. I was just hanging out at the booth this morning. I was getting yelled at because we didn't carry um, like quarter cent commons. Do you want to sort of talk about the logistics of like bringing commons and uncommons to a Grand Prix and like why a vendor may not have like standard legal commons at a standard Grand Prix? Uh, so... Oddly enough, if you were here on Thursday, uh, we were actually here reasonably early in the morning. Um, on Thursday, we were the hall was open to everyone at 11. We probably rolled in about 10:30. Uh, we were a little light, a, a little light on staff because some people weren't coming until later in the day. Uh, so it did take us a little bit of time to get going, but for the most part, we actually did have 
a lot of the cards. We had a lot of Paradise Druids. Um, that was one that was frequently asked for in a, in a quantity four. Uh, Noxious Grass is the sideboard, the sideboard main <laughs> main deck card that everyone's playing, right? That's just kind of like you know two mana instant destroy target Oko. Um, a lot of people were asking for those. Uh, we actually had a fair amount. Uh, there were some fairly like some obscure cards that we that people asked that we actually had as well. But it's important to remember that there's several issues with bringing a lot of these. Uh, first is it's uh, we naturally have to charge a lot because if these are going to be pulled out bulk or picked or if we have to open product for them, there's going to be it, it, it's a very labor-intensive process to actually stock these cards. Um, and as a result as well, because, you know, in theory we're supposed to be stocking a decent number of these cards, um, you know, widespread. Obviously not everyone's playing Oko. We, we should have expected to bring a lot of Noxious Grass, a lot of Paradise Shoes, which we did. A fair amount of people got them in the morning. But people were also asking for other cards as well. People were asking for Rarius. Uh... Like, uh, you know, Jeskai Fires was, saw some of play, so people were asking for things like Aether Gus, uh, Mystic uh, Dispersal. Yeah. Uh, the Counterspell. These, like, various things that people were actually asking for. And it's hard to be able to bring a lot of copies of cards and bring a lot of different cards. Because it's not really practical to bring, like, a five row of cards, especially because we were fortunate enough to drive here. Uh, a lot of vendors flew. And obviously, there's. That's it, just plain wrong. Thank you. Uh, it, it's not really practical to be carrying a five row on these cards that you don't really know how much you're gonna sell out of, especially when, in theory, you know, a five row of casual cards or whatever you that, that box easily be worth like a hundred thousand dollars or more. Yeah, allegedly, and, uh, definitively. I mean, Alle we, <laughs> I mean, we are we are vendors. We came knowledge the secondary market. This is what we do. Yeah. Okay. So, so we we had the first wave of pioneer bands. And so we had seamless transition, Jeremy. We, we had uh, we had Oath of Nessa bands and Leyline of Abundance. It looks like the mono green deck is still putting up five or six or results. Uh, Todd Anderson has switched to like Elvish Mystic and Land of War Elves now instead of Oath of Nessa. Um, do you feel like Nykthos gets hit next, or do you feel like that card's safe enough in this format and that they'll just keep like tuning around it? Um, I if we kind of look. So I guess if you want to unpack that a bit, right? The first waves of bands this, this week were Leyline of Abundance, yeah. Othanissa, and uh, Feldar Guardian. And Feldar Guardian. So Feldar Guardian, you know, pretty obvious. They don't want to really encourage the cat strategy because that's more or less just recycling kind of the nonsense that Kaladesh block was. Yeah. So the rationale behind Leyline of Abundance and uh, Othanissa, slight, two slightly different cards. Leyline of Abundance creates some really degenerate starts. Yes. Uh, with two green in play, it powers up Nykthos very quickly when you use it in conjunction with, you know, Elvish Mystics, Long War Elf. Any mana dork. Any mana dork. Uh, you produce a pretty absurd amount of mana very quickly. If you follow Twitter at all, there were a lot of pros who are playing in the PTQ uh, who, had post who had played various modern uh, games with Modern Green of Ocean. I think the, the one that kind of push it that, that really showcased how degenerate this card is was so, I think someone put a 15-15 walking bullet in play on turn two. Yeah. Uh, with you know obviously that requires like, like a pretty burning tree emissary and all that fun. Right, that obviously requires, you know, a pretty nutty start. You obviously need some mix of leyline of abundance, uh Nykthos, burning tree emissaries, multiple mandorks, etc. But it like that's the kind of thing that gets out of hand pretty fast. Yeah. And it's one of those things that they probably want to nip in the bud. Because if people start to fine-tune it, then the deck becomes more of a problem. So what do you feel about where Pioneer is right now? Do you think that we're going to see in the next month like any other cards get banned at all? Uh, yes. 
Uh, so last week when we were uh, during last week when we were in Command Fest in Seattle, uh, I was I was talking with some of our vendors because that was when they first made the announcement that uh, that there's going to be a weekly Pioneer uh, banner strict announcement every Monday until I think they, I want to say until the end of the year. Or so it gives them. It gives them a decent amount of time to kind of shape out the format, let people play what they want, try and break the format, and Wizards is able to respond fairly quickly. Right? Yeah. So in theory, if you know, mono, they, mono, mono Green Devotion was the breakout deck last weekend, maybe you know a different deck breaks out this weekend. That kind of gives them the opportunity to nip it in the bud if it get, if it shows oppressive numbers right away, rather than kind of get to where Standard is, where Oko has just kind of completely taken over the format. Yeah, uh, I think, based on the discussion we had, I do think we should expect some amount of bannings to happen, mainly because they don't want any sort of recycled strategy to take over, and they don't want anything that's too oppressive to take over. Because if people, you know, if if it starts to go down the road towards, you know, standard right now, right, where we have, you know, when this first started out, it was very obvious from week one that Golos was the best deck, right, and people, you know, played a bunch of that and then people realized that Standard was miserable and then they banned Field of the Dead and then yeah. everyone's playing Oko now, right? Like that like that like, like how, how how much is this how much is this gonna dampen people from wanting to play Standard for the next month, right? And there's probably gonna be a lot of fall from that. And if they and if Wizards actually wants Pioneer to take off, they have to kinda of nip these problematic things right in the bud. So say like, that as well, like on the topic of this, like Oko, as you said, was like 60, 70% of the Pro Tour meta. Yes. They ban Oko, does Fires of Invention just also get too broken? I don't think so. I think that deck has like a lot of play to it. I think it, the deck definitely does very powerful things. Uh, I think do think Fires of Invention is a very interesting card. It requires a certain amount of build around me. There's a lot of. You, you, have, you have to play in a very specific way. Um, I don't think the deck is unbeatable. But some deck has to be the best deck, but as long as it's not oppressive or unfun, I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, in the topic of Pioneer, I don't think it's gone to that stage yet. Uh, I do think we should regularly expect one to two bands a week, maybe, just to, again, kind of keep things under control, make sure that nothing is becoming too unfun or too oppressive to a format. And one to two bands a week is really good money, too. Like, if, car if the format keeps changing yes. that rapidly, you could easily see a ton of cards shift price, like, right away. And that leads to a lot of stuff that's been sitting in people's bulk boxes just going absolutely insane. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I posted on Twitter earlier this week that I think just kind of a nod towards what's happening with the bannings right now, that people shouldn't actually be overly... Um, people shouldn't try and be too bullish on this. If they're... I would argue that for most people, there's no compelling reason to start playing Pioneer right now. Um, if you want to play like on Moto, if you're trying to like play for the PTQ or something, that's fine. But there, I don't really see the need to like start playing cards in paper. Um, you know, for your for your average person, I would argue that if you save money, let the format kind of shape itself out, and then figure out like what what kind of deck you like, what works for you. You'd probably be saving money by waiting till like December to buy. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like standard is like twice as expensive as Pioneer right now as well. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of wallet fatigue at this time of the year for sure. Yeah. I mean, we we see a lot of products, right? We still have, we're still dealing with, uh, right? Like how we we kind we're starting to see like the aftermath of like the collector edition boosters. Most of them are sold out already. Um, Right, like people have definitely spent a lot of money in a very, very short amount of time, 
and we have to take into consideration that you know we it's only it's only the beginning of November, right? We still have like six weeks, seven weeks until Christmas, um, and then you know once we start going to New Year, like what else is Wizards going to drop on us? So I think there's still a long ways to go before people um, before people have like the full spectrum of information on what to do with their money and how to best spend it, especially when it comes to Pioneer. And what would you be recommending people do for the last like six weeks of this year? That's really hard to say. Um, I I don't really know what my position on Magic is like right now. Um, you know, one of the big things that dropped was that uh, another thing we should mention that happened this weekend was Star City had made the announcement about um, Star City had made the announcement that uh, they were no longer going to actively support Legacy Tell at me their about it. at their opens next year. I understand why they did that because they're a business and their goal is to make as much money as possible, but there's a lot of legacy players that feel sad about it. However, most of the legacy events weren't run by Star City in the first place. Uh, so we can break that down, right? So the first part is they will continue to host legacy events, old school events, vintage events at SEG Con, right? That's their marquee event, that's their big that's their big event that's their big event of the year. two two events twice a year that they try and really that really draws a lot of people who may not otherwise come to their Star City opens. Um, you know, if they pull support to that, that I think that's fine. Um, I think most legacy players have come to understanding that they really only get to play in these premier level events. You know, like with Star City, they probably had like one or two legacy events per uh, per quarter or so. Um, and I think most again, most people have kind of come to the understanding that realistically, this is almost as much uh, legacy as. Uh, as we get to play, um, uh, Jeremy just walked off. I, I, so I will talk for myself a bit here. Uh, to kind of further break down the announcement, um, Ben uh, Ben Bless, he's kind of the uh, social media social media guru for them. He went on Reddit on the MTG Finance subreddit. He basically posted a separate thread, kind of giving some transparency to the issue. And in short of it, he basically said that as a business, Star City, it's not in Star City's best interest to continue to host Legacy Opens. Um, mainly because it just, it naturally draws those people. Their team constructed events as well are naturally hamstrung because a lot of teams have no problem finding standard player, have no problem finding modern player. But if, to, if, you, know, if you and I had just started playing Magic in the past five years, for example, we may not have a legacy player that we're friends with, that we feel comfortable being on our team. If you're a Magic player, you may not have any friends. Sure, sure. If we want to dump on people, then we can. Yeah. Uh, so, as a result, right, like, this this kind of creates, like, this awkward position for Sorry, Obviously, they want to sell the cards. They kind of want to push. They want they want to push their formats, right? Yeah. But, it like, it's very clear that what, that these, that legacy... You know, no offense to legacy players out there. Like, they're, they're actually detrimental to the game and to the progression of Magic. Yeah. Um, I think if Wizards if, if Wizards Coast had their way, the best way that they can get rid of the reserve list without directly getting rid of the reserve list is to completely marginalize Legacy. Let Legacy be managed the same way that EDH is managed. There's a third-party independent community of Legacy fanatics and people that really like Legacy uh, that can that can handle the banner reserve li uh, banner restricted list and kind of handle it on their own terms, be responsible for organizing events that aren't necessarily under Star City and Wizards of the Coast um, 
umbrella, right? Because like you know, in, in your case, Jeremy, you host an independent uh, circuit, right? You run events, Correct. you run your charity events at Moonbase in St. Louis. Yep. And you have a great turnout for a legacy one. So that's fine. There's no reason that that should be taken away from you because you draw the same consistent people. People come in from Hawaii. All, right. People come in from all corners of the United States. Literally Hawaii. To, to play in these events. Right. And that's fine because, you know, those are people that will continue to support legacy. But I don't think Wizards needs to support legacy. Sure. Right. Because, again, you know, there will be like uh, Nurridge Gaming does them. Um, uh, for a while, Car Kingdom does a fair amount of legacy, right? There will always be legacy FNM because the legacy diehards will always be there. Yeah. But the nature of legacy, if we're being truly honest, is that it will slowly attrition itself over time. Yep. Right? We just had Eternal Weekend. Every time we have Eternal Weekend, you always see someone come in with a monster collection saying that they've been playing since, you know, the late 90s or whatever. They own, you know, Power, Duels, the whole shebang. And every time that person, that individual wants to cash out, that is one customer that is never coming back to the game because once they cash out, right, probably due to adult responsibilities, if I can convert my, you know, $100,000 collection, if I get $60,000, $70,000 on it and I put a down payment on a nice house, that that, indi- that individual is never coming back to Magic, right? Yeah. And that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the nature of legacy and vintage. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think that's why it's not... It, it, it's unfortunate that Star City has to be the one to take the brunt and to take the bullet for it, but I don't think it's the wrong thing for them to do. Sure. And I think in the long term, it's it's probably best, to be honest, yeah. that it's no longer under their purview. They no longer have to be responsible for keeping Legacy alive. Right, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Blizzards announces any more Legacy GPs for the rest of the year. So, we don't know yet. So, we only know the first quarter. Yep. Um, how are you preparing for... So... We talked about this a little bit last time I had you on in GP Phoenix two weeks ago, and then someone copied this podcast and put it on Reddit, talking about personal finance and paying off your credit card debt with Pioneer, literally using the exact same word. I, if you're in our cartel Discord, which we just had like half of Reddit come onto, which we appreciate, uh, they literally just like copy pasted what Ed said and put it on Reddit and got like, uh, wow, this is so smart thing. So what, what's your financial advice this time, Ed, when it comes to like, pioneer and getting ready for 2020 is there anything at all that like you're putting your your money into or is it just like let me get as much cash as possible for the holidays uh i think right now i think there's just so much there's so much instability uncertainty in the market right instability or instability 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 english um there, people there's just so much uncertainty like like what what do we do from here on out there's a lot of people asking me um, you know, to you know, without giving out names, someone yesterday just straight up asked me, "I have 200 of each dual land. What do I do now?" Yeah, right. He, like he's in a position where he's not gonna lose money. He, a lot of these dual lands he's owned since you know 1990, 1993, 1994. Right. He's not. He, he's well past the point where magic matters to him. He no longer owns. He he no longer actively plays. He just owns a lot of these cards. Like he's and he he's wondering like what to do. Um, you know, and we were like playing, we were like without going into too much of the conversation or like the various hypotheticals, right? Like these are type of questions that people want to be asking. These are types of questions that people want to be asking, especially for the the, the immediate short term, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're going to look at this, like what is going to happen with Legacy, right? Like what is happening with the Mystery Boosters? Like for the people who don't know, like who weren't here and don't haven't really followed up on, without going into too much detail, it's basically a one to two thousand card set. It's a massive set. It's basically Cube Masters. Correct. There's a lot of weird reprints. There's a lot of like cool things. Um, 
right? Like, you know, for example, like Mana Crypt is in this set. Yep. Right? And I, you know, I, I, I personally, I think this set is ridiculous. Um, and not because... not. Why because, is that? It's a podcast. You can easily expound on that. Not because of reprint issues, but because the nature of the set is something that I think a lot of people have been wanting have been wanting to have existed before but people I don't think were necessarily wanting in this iteration so a lot of people you know Mana Crypt the card that we that we discussed there's uh, four printings of it there is the original Brook Cormo with the original frame EMA the EMA uh, the Judge Foil which has the same R as the EMA and then there is the Invention one yes right so um uh, earlier this year, I believe it was earlier this year, we kind of saw the massive surge in Mana Crypt. Uh, the EMA one, one went from like low 100s to like, it was like pushing 180 to 200 at one point. Um, and now people, you know, there's a lot of people going around and trying to, op- people who are opening a Mana Crypt are immediately trying to flip it to the vendors. You know, and most of us are like, are saying like, no, we're not interested in buying it. Or, you know, we, we give them some, you know, low number. and. Uh, a lot of people are getting upset by this, and to me, I find it very hypocritical because the nature of a cube masters is that a lot of people who want the who want the reserveless gone, or people say think that magic is too expensive, they say that I don't care about the monetary value of the game. I just want to play the cards. Yeah, which is fine. That, that, that's a perfectly fine. That's a per- perfectly fine position to take. You can't be upset when these cards are available to you. And they're worth nothing because no one, no one wants, no one wants to buy these cards, right? Like you know, people like we offered like 60, 70 on Mana Crypt, and people were getting offended. Yeah. And it's like the whole reason Mana Crypt was expensive was because you didn't have it, right? Like once it's reprinted and widely available, people, it's not going to be expensive. Right. Sort of like how Mana Drain went like down to forty something dollars. Right. Right. Two hundred. Right. It's so like on Twitter, someone posted, someone opened up two Mana Crypts in their sealed pool. Yeah. Right. This card is not rare. It's not expensive. You well, can't, no. <laughs> of course, it's not rare. And it's a mythic rare in this set. You right. Think you, say. you can't expect it to be expensive, right? And like this is what's annoying to me about people. Either you can play the game and not be upset when your cards are worth nothing. Or if you want your cards to be worth something, there has to be scarcity. You can't have it both ways. I think playing competitive magic or like buying expensive cards is like a luxury anyway. It's not a right to own like a hundred dollar mana rock. You can you can play a soul ring instead. Sure, 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 right? But like a lot of people again were taking offense why we had no interest in these cards. Right? Especially when uh, for, so for anyone who uh, hasn't uh, who isn't here, these cards feel really bad. Uh, they have a very waxy feel to them. Yeah. So they, they quite literally feel like one of the Chinese fakes, um, one of the proxies that, you know, the fake cards you can buy. And it's not even going to be in... Um, there, 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 there aren't any in there. Oh, I know. I just like looking through stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're not even going to be in, like, the shop version. It's only for a convention because the attendance has been so bad at all uh, these the events. Te- the, the test prints are only in the convention version. Right, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Um, but so, the like, car- shop, shops get ruined once again, basically. Right. So the, the cards themselves feel really bad. Um, I'm like, again, I'm not a fan of this. Uh, it Logistically, it's going to be a nightmare to sell these cards um, because they kept the original set symbol, they kept the original collector number. There's just a little thing where like an employee that doesn't know yeah. anything about magic would have no idea of the difference. Yeah, so in the bottom left corner, there's a tiny white Planeswalker stamp. And that's the only way to distinguish that these cards are, that came out of the mystery boosters. Yeah. Uh, so we don't know a set list. We don't know, we can't, we can't pinpoint exactly what cards or how many cards are in the set and we don't know 
we, you know, what kind of print run there is. Uh, these aren't available on the prize wall. The only way to get these right now is you have to play them in events. And I just tried to join the 515 event, and I did what apparently like 25% of the people did was... More than that, just talking to people. The judges are now making announcements about like, right. you want to explain what's going on and why judges are making announcements? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people are just not even opening up the boosters. They're literally signing up for the event and dropping and keeping the boosters. People seem to think that there is a lot of retail uh, value to these. Um, a lot of the packs are, in theory, selling online for $30, $40. And this is this is just causing people to just drop without opening up their packs. Yeah. So. And um, we we've seen this before with like original Modern Masters as well. So yeah, yeah, that was the case as well when when there was a perceived scarcity for um, these packs. When originally a lot of stores got way less than their initial allotment. Yeah. And there just wasn't a lot, so people were just you know trying to hold on to packs and try and flip them rather than gamble with the, with the contents. Yeah. Do you think that more gimmicks like this are necessary to draw a GP crowd nowadays? Like, do you feel like Vegas is losing its luster? Like, the fact that we've had so many thousand tournament or th under thousand person like main events, does this matter that like they're pulling out all the stops with like now we have right, the command zone, we also have yeah. um, we have the mystery packs. You want to like extrapolate on that? Yeah. So I think like it's particularly frustrating because if you you know, like the consumer here um, is looking around and this is your one of your first Magic Fest, for example, you don't attend a lot of these. You could look around, you know, I can, I can look around, I, you know, I'm just gonna like kind of glance around real quick. I would say the convention room is pretty full, right? It looks like it's a good metric and Channel Fireball artificially inflates the number because they would, you know, from a vendor perspective, it's pretty bad for us because there's not actually that many people. There's not that many people in the room and the people who are here aren't necessarily here for uh, for the main event itself. So if you look at the main event numbers, most of them are pretty bad, right? Like we've seen like sub thousand numbers be the norm for quite some time. But now that, now that, you know, it's not becoming about the main event where that's not the main draw, right? Like how many, like, how many people are here for, you know, side events? How many people are here for Command Zone? How many people are here for, you know, the Mystery Boosters, right? Like, it's really, it's, the, the numbers themselves become really muddled. And for us as vendors, it's really hard to plan what a, uh, what an event looks like, how good or bad it's going to be. Because, like, what metric do we use? Channel Fireball claims that there's a certain number of uniques, right? Like, there's X many uniques we should expect. Right, but it, it doesn't feel like that's a genuine number. One, because there's it's very arbitrary. There's no way to actually measure how many unique people. There's no... The only measurement is how well you're doing at every event. Right. And it seems to be getting worse and worse. Right, and by we can kind of extend it and say that, you know, we expect the Grand Prix has 500 people. We expect very little overlap between people who buy Command Zone passes and Grand Prix uh, main event entries, right? So Command Zone has 250 people. Main, main event has... 500 or whatever, right? So that's 750 uniques in theory. How many people are, are walking around the hall, right? There's no good way for Channel Fireball to measure that. There's no good way for us to actually collect that data and determine how good or bad a show is going to be. Right. And it's harder and harder every year with uh, booth prices and all that, right? It's not like those are going down anytime soon. Right, right. We now have the solicitations. Uh, they just came out earlier this week for next year for yeah. Grand Prix. 
Um, so uh, that's obviously something that we've been discussing. That we can't talk too much about. I mean, we can. It's technically public, right? Like, sure, it, sure. It, it's all public. Yeah. Um, so, right. But, like, I, you know, for your obvious consumer, that doesn't matter, right? But, like, from a vendor perspective, like, this is how we have to interpret this da- this data. Excuse me. Uh, how we interpret this data and use what we what we have in front of us. Because for this show, based on the track record for Richmond, we intentionally went light on staff the show. Yeah. Uh, because for people who are at Richmond last year, like, mo- like most vendors sat around and did nothing. And that's how it was for the first two days. We basically got our butt saved by like a bunch of gimmicks. Right. And here, right, like, it, and, like the attendance drop is like very clear. Uh, there's eight vendors here last year. Uh, there's eight vendors this year compared to like 18 vendors last year. Yeah. And there are quite a few vendors that just straight up said, I'm never coming back to Richmond. Yeah. Right. One, it's expensive to fly here. If you had to, if you had to fly a crew in, you spent a lot of money to get here. Um, it's nice that it's centrally located, but again, like not every vendor has that luxury. A lot of vendors have to fly in because they're not based anywhere, you know, in anywhere close to Richmond, Virginia, except for Mooslu is based out of Baltimore, so they're three hours away. Yeah. But otherwise, the next closest vendor is uh, Cape, Fear, Cape Fear Games is yeah. from North Carolina. Right. But beyond that, like everyone had to fly a pretty decent distance to get here. Correct. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what next year holds. Yep. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I think that was kind of the majority of Richmond. We kind of discussed all kind of the new, all the news that dropped this weekend. Uh, I do want to touch a little bit on Command Fest last weekend since that was, um, you know, th- this is our recording for the week. I didn't really have a chance to talk about earlier. Classic Ed. Uh, so anyone who uh, who didn't have a chance, there were two Command Fests last weekend. One was in Seattle that was hosted by Channel Fireball. The other Command Fest was in Chicago. It was hosted by Pastimes. It was hosted by Pastimes at the same time that a um, a two 5K Pioneer tournaments were going on. Yes. The same day. Yes. In addition to Eternal Weekend. Yes. Yes. Uh, so last weekend was a huge logistical nightmare, which I'm fairly upset about. Because when I started planning events uh, back in, like, I want to say July or August, there were only two events on the schedule. I basically had to pick if I was going to go to... Eternal Weekend. Go to Eternal Weekend or go to Nagoya. And um, those are two choices. We decided to take a vacation. At some point, uh, they uh, the Pokemon schedule dropped, and I had a Pokemon regionals in Richmond, Virginia last week. Uh, so I had some colleagues that flew out to Richmond to do regionals. Yeah. Uh, I was originally slated to do that, and then eventually they dropped Command Fest on that weekend. And uh, for Tales of Adventure, it was cheapest for me to go up to Seattle because that was a quick flight that was a three-hour drive to get up there with all the luggage and yeah. i picked everyone up from the airport as opposed to flying cross-country to go to eternal weekend and meanwhile eternal weekend was the best show like period like eternal weekend is usually pretty good because you do like a lot of big deals there's a lot of like whales with money to throw and like ed said like people were selling out so all the vendors ran out of cash like there were not that many vendors the vendors were out of cash like by friday right so every vendor that had cash was doing insanely well saturday and sunday yep and we were lucky enough to do that Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, back to my original point, since we're kind of like deviating from it. Um, uh, that's what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Command Fest, I think, is going to be what Magic. We will see. We'll see Command Fest a lot more often. It's very clear that there's a lot of demand for a lot of casual players to come. Uh, I do like to be to be perfectly honest. I do like that it's a badged entry. The fact that people like every person that got in the door, uh, there's a, there's a security guard in, at least in Seattle. There's a security guard in front of the door. They made every person show their badge. Like, you had to be a badge if you're a vendor. 
Uh, you had to, there's a badge for people on staff, and there's a badge for uh, people that bought day passes. You could buy a Friday, Saturday, Sunday day pass. You could buy a three-day day pass. You could buy a two-day day pass. Uh, all these they check before you go on the door. There's actually a separate badge for WOTC staff as well. And I heard in. that they turned away like 200 people as well. There were a bunch of people who showed up, who saw the event on the calendar, thought they, they could show up and either bypass at the door or just get in without paying. And a lot of people, again, were turned away because they, you know, they just didn't realize. And they actually had the majority of uh, the, the badge. Every, every badge was sold out except for Friday. So Friday was a pretty slow day, but both Saturday, Sunday, and three-day badges were completely sold out. So, um, I think the event was reasonable. Uh, Friday was a particularly miserable day. I think they could have consolidated Command Fest in just two days, just made it Saturday and Sunday. And I think it would have been a fine event. Um, Three-day events are a bit much, mainly because a lot of Commander players, they were really only there to do business on one day. Uh, so, if these people went and they sold all their cards on Friday, we basically weren't seeing any sort of business again from that person for the rest of the weekend. Uh, we had eight vendors in Seattle as well, so that was also a little rough. And there were probably just like slightly too many, too many vendors for the amount of people that they actually had in the room at any given time. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Where can people find you? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. I am currently here in Richmond for only another day, thank God. Um, I will be in Hawaii next week on an actual vacation, not doing magic things, except shipping out TCG orders. I'll still be doing that. And then I'll be in Columbus to wrap out the month. And then in December, I will be in uh, uh, San Diego for Pokemon Regionals, followed by OKC, and then my hometown of Grand Prix Portland to wrap out the year. It's good to know. Well, you can catch this podcast on SoundCloud, of course. It'll be uploaded tonight. You can catch us on our sponsors, CoolStuffInc.com. You can catch us on... Um, all the other places you normally find a podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. We appreciate it. We'll see you next week. And as always, bye-bye.